0: To A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. My name is Jeff Milo, and joining me on the podcast today is Joy Gaines Friedler, a poet and a magnificent poet. Joy Gaines Friedler has three published collections of poetry, one of which she'll be reading from for us today here on the podcast. Joy has a master's degree in English literature from Oakland and a master's in creative writing from Ashland Universities, and she has taught as a visiting writer at Wayne State, Michigan State, and also at the Lapeer Correctional Facility for the Prison Creative Writing Projects, so she wholeheartedly appreciates and grasps the power and potential of the written word, and especially poetry. Joy has multiple pushcart nominations for her work, and said work has appeared in more than 100 esteemed literary magazines, today, Joy is speaking candidly about the inspirations for many of her poems and the catharsis attained through the form. Of poetry. It is National Poetry Month, April, and so I can't think of a better way to celebrate that than to not only talk about the universality of poetry, the resonance of the themes, ideas, and messages that a reader finds there, but we also talk about the individual fulfillments that the composer of said poetry can find for themselves. Even when one is rendering images of sadness or processing difficult memories, it is never not worthwhile. We talk, but we also listen. Joy Gaines-Wheeler is here to perform four pieces of her poetry, so we'll listen to four of those threaded throughout our conversation.
1: So I became a poet really after I had lost two of the closest people in my life. My friend Jim died from AIDS in 1990. And he, um, when I was 21, I traveled cross-country with a band, and I wound up in California and got on a train and schemed how I could get back to California. And I wound up enrolling in photography school there, and I spent two years in photography school. But the best time I had while I was in California was when Jim and my best friend, Linda, who was my best friend since ninth grade. when they were there. So it made sense that I wanted to be there, but I didn't want to be there. So Jim invited me to move back to Detroit and live with him in his basement of his house in Inkster. He got AIDS in in 1985. And um, he died in 1990, September. He kept a journal the last two years of his life. And he willed his journal to me. So I actually have his handwriting. I have his voice. I have the cards that I gave him, that I sent him, that he kept. And that, I didn't know what to do with that except to feel it. And so I wound up writing. And I wound up writing a series of poems. And the poems won a a National Poetry Award. So every book I've written uh, has been dedicated to Linda and to Jim. And so I'm going to start with <clears throat> this is a more recent poem published in a, in a magazine called Arts and Understanding, which deals with the AIDS crisis. And it's, this poem is for Jim. It's called When the World Converted to Acronyms. We began talking in code, HIV, AZT, AIDS, The pipes shifted in the walls as the heat came on, the crows left to seek safer neighborhoods. The screaming ambulances gave way to holes of silence and families began to count their living. Counting and counting, we counted on test tubes and blood counts, counted on a few good jokes. Then Jim called to say, he has it, he has it too. I came home to it, an empty space where a massive elm had canopied over the others. A storm blew in while I ate pasta and salmon at Bennigan's living on a prayer and MC Hammer singing, you can't touch this. I came in through the front door, the phone message light flashing, looked out the back window to the perfectly random woods to what was missing.
0: I think that's so powerful and beautiful the way you end that, the way that we're listening to that and gazing out and seeing that empty space and what that represents. But I think one of the first things I wanted to ask you as a poet is this range of the senses that are usually included, pretty much always included in all of your poetry. You make sure that we see that gape in the woods, you make sure we hear. That ambulance. We might be able to even taste some of that food at Bennigan's. Uh It's <laughs> such a it's such a span for all the senses. And you know that reminded me of uh, something you'd already said to me is that you approach poetry as a story, as a song, and as a visual too.
1: Exactly, exactly. So I'm a lyrical poet. So I'm 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 not a narrator necessarily. I don't have a beginning, middle, end storytelling. And even good narrative poetry has a lyrical quality to it. But what I have, what my poetry does, I think, is through the images, through the music, through the sound, through the 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 way it looks on the page, the form, the form itself, all informs meaning. So there's meaning beyond just the language itself. And I mean, we we experience through what we see and we can place our readers in a different location to get a different feeling for it the idea of poetry isn't so much a memoir although it is Mm -hmm. but it's the memoir it's 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 truth rather than fact Mm -hmm. it's feeling Mm -hmm. rather than the facts so to get how do i get to that truth yeah how do i really get you to understand what i'm what I'm experiencing here, that's by putting that huge elm that's been there forever and erasing it, so that you understand what that means. Yeah, he's gone. Yeah, right?
0: that's such a huge, um, huge body of nature, all of its roots, and the noise that it would make while yeah. it falls, and just the magnitude of that, and then a, a life just losing this someone someone who was a life in inside of your life it's just right. and also those quiet moments where we where we or our thoughts feel loud when you come into that room and it's just you and the answering machine and this red light on the machine almost like a warning that that has to be compared to an ambulance that goes screaming by that's a very quiet moment where it's just you and you really put us there it's very beautiful
1: Thank you so much for reading or listening so carefully. Yes.
0: Would you like to read the next poem and tell us about it?
1: Yeah, sure. Okay. So I'll read about Linda because the two of them are completely connected to me. So when I did live with Jim in his basement in Inkster and a waterbed without a frame, Linda spent practically every weekend there. So she lived with us as well, in a sense. We all lived together. And then... It, and then in 1993, three years after Jim died with Linda, and then next day, I called her that night, and she wasn't answering the phone, which wasn't unusual. But the next morning, I got a phone call. Linda, had, Linda was having trouble telling me what she needed to tell me at that breakfast. She couldn't eat. And what she was telling me was that she was filing for divorce. And this was my best, best, best friend, and I had no clue whatsoever. Um, She uh, didn't want to tell anybody, including me in a way, because she waited, but she said to me, I promise you I will tell you why, but I can't tell you why. I'm not telling anyone because like Robert Frost says, way leads on to way, and she was not going to let that happen. She was very protective. And I just said, it's fine. I love you. I kissed her goodbye. We'll take care of your son, three years old, and uh, we'll go up north. And uh, that's how I left things. And the next day, somebody called me and said, did you hear about Linda and Michael? And I thought they meant the divorce. And then there was, I said, yes, I heard and she'll be fine. We'll take care of her. And I was wrong. Michael had shot and killed Linda that the night before. So she was gone. Jim was gone. Um, and uh, it took a couple years to re- recover from that, but so this is why I write about it all the time. So this poem is uh, in my, I think it's in, I can't remember if it's my second book, Dutiful Heart, or my third book, Capture Theory, but it's called, it's, 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 it's newer than when she first died. It's called Home Repair. And here's the thing about the poem. The home repair is both literal, how we repair our homes, And of course, the home that is the body, that is the heart, that is the spirit, right? Home repair for Linda. 5.30 AM, heat pings the baseboards. A whistle announces water boiling. Yesterday, I swore I saw you in the crowd at the home repair show, your face perfectly focused inside the blur of others. Who repaired the kitchen floor after your life cloaked across the crevice stone? what became of the 22 shoved into his glove box. I didn't wake, I don't wake to the healthy body forsaken or face this newly purchased pawabic cup with regret for material things. The granite moon shines even in the prison windows. Despite midnight calls or my loving this blood-colored glaze of this wheel-thrown mug I'm pouring hot water into, turning grounds into coffee. The still remaining moonlight drains its gold plating onto the front lawn, like that morning and others when you and I, without boyfriends, finally made it home after watching the headlights dim through the window of our favorite all-night diner. Moonlight is a facade, a front, a disguise, a veil. The newspaper says he'd been beating you the pantry door keeps falling off its hinges. I repair it. I repair it again.
0: This is also extremely powerful because I, I have to presume that you, especially through poetry, feel as though you have you could be a steward of her memory. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. A keeper of her, and especially with this poem, a keeper of her light, but that that restoration of uh it was a cupboard at the end.
1: Yeah, the um pantry door. Right. Right.
0: And right. the beginning of that poem makes me think about when a life does suddenly end, there's just so much that becomes paused.
1: Yeah, right.
0: There's a and there's a lot of beautiful imagery in this in this one about lights. Even if it isn't the moonlight, you see those headlights too when you flash back in your memory.
1: Right. Exactly. Thank you. You know, it's interesting because you know, I didn't know what was going on in my best friend's life. And the one thing I learned above all else mm-hmm. is that if I didn't know what was going on in her life, mm-hmm. I don't know what's going on in anyone's life. Oh, yeah. That we all wear these facades. Yeah. That, the, that there's nothing that is truly not being disguised mm-hmm. in some way. Mm-hmm. And so I put in there that moonlight as as facade, as a front as a disguise as a veil Mm -hmm. right and we all do that we have to that's how we survive right um but then the shock that the newspapers say this disembodied thing tells me what was going on in your life that he'd been beating you
0: yeah that's so disorienting yeah yeah
1: it's the pantry door falling off its hinges
0: right you know Something that you have illuminated for me is, and I'm, I guess I'm just, for the sake of argument, I'm, I'm coming at this from a bit of a reductive view, but you know, you can kind of talk to me more as someone who has taught poetry, taught writing. When I think of poems or songs, especially when a poet or a songwriter wants to make an ode to someone, an homage or a tribute, mm-hmm. it, it seemed quite often to me that that, that poet or that songwriter might write that one ode or that one song and feel like that one page of poetry or that four minutes of song was not enough but like okay i I made my tribute that was it but you've opened me up to this idea of you could write three poems about one person ten poems about one person you have to i guess keep tending that that beacon in a way uh it shouldn't just be one piece and and then call it a day. You, you can just keep remembering and, and celebrating, but even processing emotions, right?
1: Right. And I like how you call it. I like how you described that. That's great. Um, the poet Gregory Orr, you know of Gregory Orr, um, when he was 10 years old, he had an accident in which he accidentally killed his brother in a hunting accident, the rifle. And he... It probably would have killed him mm-hmm. um, you know as a teenager he became suicidal but he had an English class mm-hmm. in which he was allowed to write mm-hmm. and he spent his entire life writing about that mm-hmm. books and books and books of it Right. it shows up in different ways and different forms but we cannot help but write our obsessions and I don't care what the obsession is it can be a you know, I don't mean that negatively all the time, but we cannot help but write our obsessions, and the the key is to write them beautifully. That's it. Learn craft. Keep doing it. Do what you need to do.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: and,
0: yeah, yeah. And it just got me thinking, like, what what does what does poetry need to do for us? Well, it, yeah, it's whatever we need it for. And I I I have to imagine that the and this goes into like what poetry is an, as an exercise. I know that you see it as a literary exercise, not an academic exercise, but right. it's a, it is, you know, the word I wanted to bring up probably from minute one of this podcast was catharsis, that idea, uh, and it being a therapeutic exercise. If I, if I had trauma to process, uh, poetry could be an outlet, but I think it's worth saying that one poem might not do it. No. I might need a hundred poems.
1: No, yeah. yeah. I mean, look at Van Gogh. I mean, how many times did he paint a sunflower? You know, um, or or I mean, you recognize artists by their palette, yeah, right. And poetry is just another art. Mm-hmm.
0: Let's move into your next couple poems. Tell us about your next one.
1: Okay, so my uh, mother. <laughs> everybody writes about their mothers. So, um, so in in 2006, my father got pancreatic cancer. My mom was a person who never drove. Um, she depended on him for everything. And she she was one of these people, a 1950s housewife kind of thing that, I think she was very happy as a young person, but I don't think she was happy being a 1950s housewife. And as time went on, she, she developed a lot of depression, but, um, right after my dad died and I went to, I had to go down to Florida to, to take care of both of them. And I took over everything. I took over their finances, their lawyers, their uh, investing, um, their housing, everything. And I did it from Michigan. So I was back and forth all the developed dementia very quickly after dad died. And so I had to move her like three times. And one of the places I moved her to was an assisted living um, where she was independent and quickly became not independent. So we had to move her to a more assisted uh, location in the building. And eventually she moved into a place called the memory floor. She had Parkinson's dementia. So as she was declining, I was growing in these really interesting ways. But this poem uh, is about that memory floor, visiting her. And when you walked in, there was these two-dimensional, like you'd walk in, it was a locked locked floor, so you had to get in somehow, either ring a bell or have a code. And when you walked in, the walls were these two-dimensional paintings. They were paintings of, you know, flowers and gardens. And and it was like this metaphor for this two-dimensional life that she had taken on, right? So I call this poem, not the memory floor, but the lack of memory for. A locked door separates us now, thick window she doesn't know exists. If I pick up a larva, place it on another milkweed, say a better leaf, would it know that I'm trying to save its life? There is a keypad. I am codeless. There is a bell. Buzzed in, I enter a small town, two-dimensional. Flower pots and pansies painted on painted walls of painted storefronts. Dean Martin singing, That's Amore. Into my pocket, I put the series of numbers I'd been handed by a nurse in sweatpants. When I was born, the house was song, my sister tells me, but soon the dishes broke. Joy swept up with the mess on the floor. I was handed over to the maid. My mother's in a wheelchair by the window. Aids sweep crumbs from the tables around her. She's lost the map to words, but smiles when she sees me. There are flowers on the slip-on shoes I've bought her, two-dimensional violas. She stares down at them, stares as though searching for the ground they grow in, the soil she once turned, the small-handled hoe, the vase she once broke then wept over. I find myself seeking language for her. Shoes, violas, Dean Martin.
0: That stanza where you begin about the shoes and her looking down at them in about three lines, you covered decades. Oh. <laughs> That's amazing. It's so stuff good. Right
1: there. It's, you're so right. It's, it's so good. Uh, that is
0: amazing. And and oh gosh i was i was just listening to and then i was listening to this sort of the scene in the kitchen and uh how what was the phrase the the house was song
1: yes when i was born the house was song mm-hmm. my sister tells me mm-hmm. but soon the dishes broke
0: in your and then i love the performance of poetry too is a whole other thing unto itself the cadence that you get in you know as i was listening to it and as my brain was processing i heard you say uh, joy was swept up and I almost thought you were talking about the emotion and not your own name.
1: <laughs> I think it was both. It, was, it was so good. <laughs> so good.
0: And then again, all the, all that imagery, all those flowers. And I think it's
1: worth,
0: I, I think it's worth mentioning that you do have, you know, we didn't mention this on the podcast yet, but you have an eye mm-hmm. for that other realm of art. You, oh, your photography is, is one of your also specialties. So.
1: Right. I was a photographer for 20 years. I, I went to photography school, but when I was a, a teenager, I used to lay on the floor in my bedroom with my headphones on, and I would, uh, I would, I would listen to Led Zeppelin, you know, or, um, or Joni Mitchell, or, and, and I would paint the album covers. I would draw the album covers while I was listening to the music so you know it i am a very visual person that's how i remember things i don't remember people's names i I apologize to the whole human race for that because (laughs) i wish i could sure but i remember the story you told 30 years ago right because i see it i see it in my mind
0: yeah it's not a photographic memory but maybe it is but that (laughs) was right oh that poem we all would love to hear one more what is the last one you want to read for us
1: okay This is an interesting poem, it's called Burial. This is the the divorce one. Again, we were talking about the imagery. So this much of my poetry, I'd say all of it, sometimes language starts a poem for me, but images start the poem for me. And this was the image of a squirrel who had gotten its way into our bird feeder and suffocated there and died, okay? So that's an image I can't get out of my head. I had to use it. So this is called Burial. Not of bones or humiliations we lie with, thankful for the alarm of another day, but of the squirrel who found her way into the tube feeder, sought black oilers, their seedy scent, the way the apple in its sun glow tempted Eve. Pungent, apple scent, like the scent of Adam himself, his skin, his hair. Maybe now I've gone too far, but isn't that what the squirrel sought there in the feeder I filled, I hung? Her clever mind figured the lid off, reckoned away to the manna there, The way the man whose elbow rested confident on his knee as he flicked ashes from his cigarette, whose music lined his walls alphabetically, whose love of mysteries pulled me from my marriage into a conduit of seed, no consciousness of how deeply the tube held its food or what might be at the end, no end at all dug in i consumed my way to the bottom found myself trapped she died there suffocated when all she wanted was to be fed
0: and is it all that you wanted to to love and be loved exactly in in that in terms of going through a divorce right and right and how do we even control the emotions that come up about that
1: Right. It's always complicated, isn't
0: it? And what are we owed? What do we feel we're owed? Who? What do we feel we deserve? And what do we want? Right. Not out of and what's
1: our, what's our responsibility in
0: it? Mm-hmm. Again, mm-hmm. And again, that's a very, I mean, you start from a very sad image, but to end on that line when she just wanted to be fed, it gets into something else your poetry and, and all good poetry should do is, again, you, you talk about poetry uh, as being an opportunity for memoir, but... And we've, we've heard about your stories here, but t- talk about the importance of universality, right? The, the resonance. Right.
1: So the personal is the universal, mm-hmm. always. Um, and I tell my memoir students that all the time because memoir is the hardest thing to write mm-hmm. because that requires you to interrogate your memory. I can't do that. Yeah. I can I remember the feelings, um, but also I think my poetry and I think the poems that I like to read have some element of redemption, mm-hmm. you know, they're not just, oh, woe is me, here's my story. Mm-hmm. It's um, there's some redemption or forgiveness or something happens. that Something shifts within that poem that makes it universal. Mm-hmm. It makes it worth wanting to go back to the poem again to find where that truth is. Mm-hmm. Where does it lie? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I don't want to just tell my stories unless there's something beautiful to learn from it.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's the uh, the other important factor about memoir is it is not autobiography. It is not cradled to the grave. Memoir could be a, a span of time, a summer of your life. So uh, right. the important thing to think of, I think anyone who wants to write a memoir or anyone who wants to write a poem about something that happened to them, I think that it's very natural for anyone to say, oh, well, who... Who might actually care about this thing that happened to me? Sure, I can describe it, but what's it going to mean? And, and finding that meaning and finding how that experience changed you, what you took away from it, how it how it altered the way you did or did not face the new day, that that's kind of the conclusion you always kind of want to reach for. Not that it's it, a... It's, yeah.
1: it's not what happened it's what you make of what happened
0: yeah that's it
1: and and it can be very flash i mean it could be something memoir can be something that happened yesterday Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. um or um so this is what i think about writing in general is that there's there's a scale and so if you're writing memoir you're also using the devices of poetry and if you're not you're not writing well Mm -hmm. so you're you know not using enough language and imagery and music and sound and lyric quality and you know if you're writing fiction also you're going to grab from memoir you're going to grab from from poetry all of its scales yeah slides on that scale yeah right
0: you know as as i as i as i wind down this podcast i'm a bit overwhelmed as to how to uh thank you i guess joy because this is is very you've come onto this podcast you've and Of course, other people can listen to this, but it's just been you and me for the last half hour. And I've been hearing these these, uh, these intense emotional readings and I am very appreciative of it. And I think that as it is National Poetry Month, I think that it's all very important to remember why we need poetry, why we celebrate poetry.
1: Right. It's so important. It's a poem. It's what we go to when we need something. But you are a very good listener and reader and thinker of it. So this has been such a pleasure just to talk to you about it because you get it. Yeah.
0: Well, uh, Like Vapor and Dutiful Heart Mm are two previous collections of poetry, which we have in the Ferndale Library. I'm going to make sure that we get Capture Theory, which is one of the most recent uh, got some award recognition over the last three years, which is really great. And I don't know what else to say, but thank you, joy and and uh, happy National Poetry Month to you.
1: Thank you, Jeff. Everybody read a poem just for the fun of it. Not academics. <laughs> thank you so much.
0: And that was our chat with Joy Gaines Friedler, a poet of course, but also 20 years a professional photographer. She sees poetry as a natural extension of the photographic art form and they both have so much in common with what they convey. And we will have a link to more information about Joy's work. We have two books currently in circulation here at the library, and we'll have the third one in no time. I assure you, we always love having works by local authors circulating here in the Ferndale Library. And this is our podcast a little too quiet we always appreciate you listening it is brought to you by the friends of the ferndale library i'm jeff milo and the music that brings us in and out of this podcast is by local musician chad stalker if you enjoyed this conversation please share it to social media or tell a friend if you've been listening to us for a while already remember to rate review and subscribe and we want to wish you a happy national poetry month thanks again to joy Gaines reader and thank you for listening